we find when we are able to listen and you, you know, this is, comes up in cross-cultural uh, experiences is that we have far more in common than not. And when that can be realized, when you're able to sit and talk with someone and realize, okay, there's more commonality here, you could have compassion for, and when you have compassion, it doesn't mean that you don't still arrest a person. It doesn't mean that they can't, they don't have, you know, they're not going to go through the process, but the impact on that person when they're shown compassion through that process is, is huge. It's different than if you're disrespectful, condescending or biased in your perform the performance of your work, especially in policing because we have such authority. Self-leadership can be lonely. It's hard to do the thing no one else wants to do, that no one else is willing to do. But you are not alone. There are others dancing through the fight and laughing as they lead. Let's find them, swap stories, and live through this together. Welcome to How I Live Through This, I'm your host, Ann Roach, and I'm really glad you're here. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Jessica Nowoski. Jessica is the Deputy Police Chief for the Mountain View Police Department here in California and a leadership coach. She started her career in 1995 and has worked her way up the ranks from officer, agent, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, and now Deputy Police Chief. She earned her bachelor's degree in criminal justice administration before she became a cop and went on to earn her master's degree in leadership with an emphasis on coaching and facilitation in 2017 from St. Mary's College. Over the last six years, Jessica has been specifically focused on developing strategies for leadership development in law enforcement, primarily through the use of coaching. She's presented her work at the Columbia Coaching Conference in New York and the International Leadership Association Conference in Ottawa, Canada. She's happily married with two beautiful children and enjoys spending time with family, traveling, and coaching. Welcome, Jessica. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you, Anna. It's so great to be here. What an honor. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I first heard you talking uh, when I was doing some researching on uh, the role of coaching and law enforcement. And I remember we were on Clubhouse and you started talking about self-leadership and using coaching as a way to create more awareness and how awareness can shift reaction into response and how all of that can and will shift the culture of law enforcement. And I just about fell out of my chair. I was so excited to hear you talking. Can you say a little bit more about how you're using, okay, I'm gonna pause because I was going to ask you, can you say a little bit more about how you're using coaching in leadership development? But the question that I really want to ask you <laughs> is what led you to do this work that you're doing? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question and an important one. And I remember um, when I promoted to captain in April of 2014, somewhere around that time, and I was having a conversation with the chief and the other captain, our executive staff, and, and we were talking about what, you know, the needs of the department. And, you know, they were really talking about, we need leadership development. And, you know, I, I needed to kind of take the, the that role and lean into that. And I was eager to do that. And I thought that's exciting. 
And uh, I looked around and thought, oh man, I'm not sure if I'm quite capable of leading this charge because, you know, I've always kind of contemplated going back and getting my master's program. And that's really what motivated me to look at a leadership master's degree here locally that the program actually started with law enforcement professionals. And so it had a a long standing history with uh, executives in law enforcement. So that's what kind of got me into it. And then at the same time, that program offered um, a coaching facilitation emphasis. And so I would say that's my first real formal experience in, in education, in coaching and how that can be used as a vehicle for leadership development. And, and I went and applied and got in in 2015. So between 2015, 2017, I was uh, working on my master's degree and that's when all the magic started to happen. And I have not let up since. I feel like I'm a little bit obsessed with the topic. <laughs> Can you say more about the magic? What does that mean for you? Yes. You know, there's something um, really special about the layers and the skill set in coaching that marries so perfectly with leadership development. And it's, it's not the only thing, and it shouldn't be the only thing that moves the needle. But what I love about it is that anybody can learn coaching skills as supervisors and managers and have and have that those skill sets and that approach influence their leadership style Mm -hmm. that allows for a whole person approach and not such a especially in such a command and control hierarchy that we're in a paramilitary and there's a reason for that i'm not negating you know the importance of command and control there's a time and place for those things but what I've in my research and what I've seen and heard, you know, from others that has happened is that we get really good at having that command and control approach. And then that dominates our leadership style in this industry. And that's not a a beneficial leadership style to lead people when there's not a crisis. Yeah. So that, you know, I think the beauty of it is that you could put together what you're already doing in your organization and leverage those places in the system, in your organizational system to heighten self-awareness, to develop people personally and professionally so that they could more easily bring their best selves forward. That has such beautiful, it just kind of splinters off. If, if you could imagine like a spider web of uh, something starting and taking off, you, know, you start developing people and their ability to recognize, making sure that their intention matches their impact when they're communicating. So if you could improve your, you know, uh, a variety of people's communication styles and skill sets in an organization, the impact of that morale goes up, you have stronger relationships between subordinates and supervisors which impacts culture because now you're more interested in, you know, making sure you do right by your people and you want to bring their best selves forward. And and it kind of helps you find a way to move ego out of the way more often. And anytime we can do that, I think we're getting somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, I love the pinpointing of ego because if you're leading from, Ego, which is such a, that's such a, that's such a word. There's so much there. Some of it's, 
you know, some ego is important, but if you're leading from that only, you're you're missing a lot. That's right. Yeah. Can you give me an example of where you've seen that shift in in the communication and how that's impacted? Yes, I love that question. I'm going to I'll start with an example that came out of a professional coaching engagement that I had as I was preparing to apply for promotion for a captain. And I was, you know, with my coach and and working on how to interview and that kind of thing. But really what she had me focus on was, well, how are you going to show up when you get the position? And the complexity of that particular moment was, if I got promoted to captain, the other two people that would would be reporting to me would be the two lieutenants that were also testing for captain, both of which had more seniority overall in the department. One of them I promoted to lieutenant with, but he had been a sergeant a lot longer. And I knew that there was a challenging dynamic around that work and how they felt about me and my, um, you know, they were two men, I'm one woman that, you know, somehow in reflection certainly played a role. And so I had to really focus on how am I going to show up for them and really putting what is our goal and our mission um, and what are we here to do, putting that first every day. And my coach gave me that skill set. I later studied adult development theory and realized, oh, that's what you're doing. But in the moment, it was just a strategy. It was a, a frame of mind to say, what happens if you are able to just witness their behavior and not become mm-hmm. part of it, not let yourself take it in and internalize their behavior, not worry about basically that the advice was their opinion of you is really none of your business and you need to um, show up every day, your best selves and help them draw their best selves out. And if I kept that at the focus of everything I did versus what I, where I was heading was worrying about, oh my gosh, these guys don't believe in me. You know, ultimately I got promoted and they reported to me. And, um, and there were some challenges in that, both from you know, their perspective and my perspective. And one of the, the lieutenants really called me out on, because I just was trying to leave him alone and let him do his thing. I thought that was the way of respecting him and his you know, time you know, with the department and his ability to do his job. And basically he's like, no, you need to, he held me accountable to show up and to be available to him. Hmm. And I wasn't, you know, I think I was just trying to avoid and not just confront it. And when I realized, you know, kind of what was happening, I just made myself more available to him. And it wasn't about my ego. I, I had to put that out of the way. I had to put the fact that, oh, I don't want to walk over to his office because, you know, he may say something that, you know, you know, hurts me or whatever. And I had to say, well, does that really matter? It just doesn't matter. What matters is, are we getting the work done together? Are we accomplishing our goal and what's important in his, you know, in the division and what, you know, his, his goals were and what his tasks were? Am I showing up to support him to get those things done? And every day, you know, hitting that reset button and realizing what am I trying to get out of the day and putting that mission at the core of what we're doing and focusing on that and not focusing on the internal mm. 
monologue or that, you know, whatever your syndrome is, you know, you could be the, the uh, imposter syndrome. We've heard a lot about that, you know, and, and that has to do with ego. We all have ego. So I'm not saying ego is bad, but like you said, letting ourselves, I, I could have really shortchanged uh, myself and those two lieutenants had I continually had the ego in the way. And I'm sure there were times that, you know, if you interview them, they're going to say, oh yeah, she did this, she said that or whatever. So I'm not saying that there's, you know, there's perfection in that, but certainly I look back and see evidence of how it could have gone a lot worse. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and we got through it. I mean, I think we got through it without any major drama and we kept the mission at the forefront of what we were doing. And that was at the end of the day, that's what's important. Yeah. Say a little bit more about how you're using these coaching tools in leadership development. What does that look like in your department? Yeah. So where it started was um, we did kind of a research project where we um, pulled together the lieutenants that oversee all of the teams in the field operations or in the patrol division. And we practiced coaching skills. We picked uh, well, we ended up doing three. We picked four, but we ended up doing three. And the first ones was, that we started out with was how to be better listeners. Because I mm -hmm. think that when I looked at the coaching skill sets and, and I saw that one is a foundational one. If you don't have that one, none of the other ones really matter all that much. I think had, if I can go back and do it again, I think we would have done listening and practicing being present, but, and we would have maybe called that out a little bit more clearly. But what we did was we practiced what it means to really listen. And I'll make one distinguishing comment about that. So you have the essence of what we focused on was we all can hear our inner narrative running when we're in a conversation. Sure. And it takes when you're used to that, especially when you're making decisions or life's moving quickly and you're used to your opinions running amok in your head, it takes some practice to slow down and pay attention to that voice and to, to quiet that voice and then really focus on your intention when you're listening, that you're there to understand and not to have a rebuttal, not to be right, um, not to finish their sentence, not to get out what you have to say, you know, really shift the intention to, to understanding. And let's let's just practice that. Like we really unpacked it and came down to some core fundamental skill sets that would set us up for success. So. We focused on that one. We realized we were focusing at home and it was really a project on manager as coach. So we refocused it in the workplace. And then the next skill set was asking uh, open questions mm -hmm. that, and, and, and not, you know, kind of um, assuming that there's more going on under that waterline and asking questions, assuming that there's information that you don't have. Yeah. So coming in, so building your ability to be curious longer. And we put those mm -hmm. two together and we really didn't focus on, I know ICF has like 12 fundamental coaching skill sets and we didn't focus on that because we weren't trying to be purist coaches, if you will. We were trying to improve our abilities as supervisors and managers and, and come to the workplace with a more coach-like style. And, and so what we saw from that when we practiced that was it improved our ability to have uh, more respectful relationships with our mm. subordinates and our peers. Because when you're, when you develop the ability to really listen to what someone is saying and ask curious questions, open-ended questions and not 
that doesn't put them on the defensive, that opens them up and more information is shared, that puts a person, like I said, in, in a non-defensive posture and you're able to connect. There's more connection and respect. You feel heard, you feel valued, you feel worthy, and you don't get the same response from the other person. So what the, what the here's a place where I, I call it magic. Mm-hmm. It only takes one person in that conversation to practice those skill sets or have that intention um, for there to be movement. It doesn't mean that everybody has to go through, you know, when I practice, obviously, you know, I'm practicing these all the time. And when I notice that I'm using, you know, specifically using this in a conversation with my husband, he didn't go through an organizational leadership master's program with coaching and facilitation, right. <laughs> but he's in conversation with me. So it only took me showing up differently to really alter the quality of the conversation, which then affects the quality of the relationship. Yeah. And that then improves morale. Um, we're able to make better informed decisions. We're able to be more collaborative. And when people feel like they're part of something, I mean, I don't know that I think that says uh, a lot on its own that they just feel they feel like the the it's more woven in and they're part of the the planning. They're part of the decision making. They're part of what's making this place a really special place to work. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think that's that is the magic of coaching that I've experienced is that how I show up when I shift how I show up, the outcomes are I I couldn't have even imagined what, you know, the outcomes that have happened in my life because I've changed the way I show up. And and they do, they impact everybody whether it's somebody who went through I mean, very few people in my life have gone through coaching, but all of my relationships with those people are different now because of the coaching that I went through and how I show up. One of the things that I, when I started doing research in, in using coaching in law enforcement, I quickly discovered, and I, you know, I have no experience with law enforcement, except that I was, you know, as a public defender. So I look look from the outside looking in, but I quickly heard from a lot of people in law enforcement that there was a need for a shift within the organization, within the, um, I don't know if you call it an organization or an or a industry industry yeah within the industry of law enforcement that um the mental health for instance the mental health of of um of those in law enforcement is at an all-time low and you know suicide rates are up and divorce and um you know all of those statistics were really eye-opening and so i'm hearing you say that 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 using coaching within the leadership development has really shifted the morale in your department. And I'm curious, and it, it makes sense. And I'm happy to talk more about that. It makes sense that that would be exponential that, you know, not, it wouldn't only affect the department itself, but then the relationships that people who go through that have on the outside with the with their families. And I'm curious where you see or can you say more about where you see the impact radiating out of just within the department? Where do you see that that's impacting uh, relationships outside of the department or with the community or, or, or that kind of thing? 
Yeah, we've had some organizational wide initiatives that have really leaned in on, you know, listening sessions and having really open dialogue with our community, especially in light of everything that happened last year um, with uh, the killing of George Floyd and the civil unrest and the dynamics, you know, in, in the country really with law enforcement, even though, you know, it may not have happened in our region or our city, those things, you know, there's a, a reverberation that goes across the, the country. And, you know, I, I think that they're related. I don't, I couldn't say that, um, the fact that we were leaning into, you know, coaching, supporting leadership development necessarily, you know, specifically led to it. I would just say that it's kind of um, part of the fabric of what we were intending on doing in our organization in the first place. Um, and, you know, coming up with an idea, you know, I had some really brilliant people here that thought we need to do a program where we bring in folks from the community that are not necessarily supporters of us, that they have some, you know, critical things to say about law enforcement in general, and maybe, you know, some specific things to say about our, our own organization. And let's get them in a program to where they learn about us and that we talk about some really hard things. And we don't necessarily have to solve anything in that moment, but man, wouldn't it make a big difference if we just understood each other better? If they understood mm -hmm. us better and we understood their concerns better, we would have, you know, be better informed to make decisions internally and have higher awareness in what, you know, the concerns really are, not necessarily of the people that just support law enforcement, no matter what, but the folks that had a little bit more to say about it. And, and that has, I mean, that's one example of the impact that it has. I mean, if you think about, if you have officers that are that feel disgruntled that are struggling with mental health they don't feel supported they don't feel heard or taken care of and studies show that they do they it's their performance in the field suffers their ability to connect with the community and handle you know call to call to call and and to be resilient is it suffers if that's not taken care of and so you have this concept um, that was highlighted in uh, President Obama's uh, 21st century uh, policing and the one of the six pillars is um, procedural justice well that was part of my research project um, when I was in my master's program when I look at that we really needed to focus on uh, making sure that we were providing internal procedural justice yeah. that we can't possibly just say that's only our responsibility to do that with the relationship with our organization to the community. Of course, that is the obvious you know place that we're concerned. That's more of the output. But what do we do to get there? And you know, you highlight wellness, and and we've made some shifts. And you know, like I said, there's many other people in our organization that are leaning in in so many different ways that are really, you know, it's kind of like a, a fabric, a quilt that's being put together with all these beautiful pieces. And one of the pieces is, you know, focusing on professional develop development and wellness. And so we're, we've recently decided to change the name of our personnel and training unit, which is a standard name in a lot of police departments for the place where they oversee all the standards of hiring and training and keep all the paperwork to professional development and wellness, putting an emphasis on mm. wellness in the department. And I think that's part and parcel of the whole, the, of the bigger concept. It's not, it's not just about coaching. It, it just, it, 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 coaching really helps 
bring that foundational piece to where everything else can be built on that because it does affect the culture. And when you start to shift a culture, watch out, like lots of beautiful things will happen. I love that, Jessica. I love that, that truth that you cannot affect change if you're not, if you're not looking inward first and shifting to change how you're showing up genuinely, what you're, what you're focusing on and that accountability, that accountability of how the way you've seen things has affected the outcomes of, of that you're, okay, let me, I'm getting all too wordy. So let me <laughs> slow down. The, the accountability starts inwardly first. So how, how am I showing up and how is that impacting those around me? And it isn't until I really address shifting how I'm showing up for myself that I can then start shifting how I show up for others. Absolutely. And, and so when you say that, what I, a visual that I have is if I imagine our, our organization, say you have an organizational chart in front of you that shows where all the divisions are and who reports to who, and you think about that as your system, you, you have to, you know, look at the places, you know, what makes up the system are a couple of things, the people, the individual people that come to do the work and the structures of workflow uh, processes. And those processes are really designed to support the people and the mission of why we're here to do the work. And so you can't just come in and look at a workflow and change the workflow of something, mm -hmm. or you can't just come in, for example, and change the name of a unit mm -hmm. and then do no other work. I mean, we've retitled things in our department over the years with good intention, but if we're not drilling down right? Or unpacking it to the individual level, then we're not going to get anywhere. It's not going to be sustained change. And that's what we're, that's what anybody's looking for. You don't want to just say you're attempting and it doesn't, it doesn't happen. So, you know, bringing in, you know, managerial coaching training, you know, talking about it, emphasizing, look at how this makes a difference in your ability to be a supervisor and supervisors are sergeants who are our frontline supervisors and patrol and investigations are, the ones who every officer in the organization reports to a sergeant. So they have the widest impact, uh, direct day-to-day -day impact, which is, is a lot. If you measure it, you know, compared to where I sit, I may see, you know, a handful of people every week, but I don't have the same impact in that way that sergeants do. So really looking at that group of sergeants to make sure that individually and collectively they come to work armed with those skills to have a positive impact on their patrol officers, that they're able to hold them, you know, provide them the feedback they need in their performance, hold them accountable. That's one thing that always suffers if you don't have strong communication, effective communication is you, you don't feel confident in giving the feedback that's necessary, sometimes right. saying hard things. And but people need to hear it as hard as it may be. People need to hear it to improve. And then to run a team with a team dynamic, right? You know, going a layer up from the individual, you know, the how do the team interact and the sergeant keeping an eye on how the team support each other. I see it this way. Sometimes organizations, not just in law enforcement, but you look at any type of business, they they function and they run, but if they're not really, if their operating system that's always running in the background is not on developing your people, then you're behind the eight ball already. I think, you know, things are moving so fast in the world. 
technology, you know, dynamics, politics, everything is shifting. And if we're not ready to evolve and lean into that and be prepared for that, and maybe we don't have the answers. I mean, I'm really describing adaptive leadership. If, if I'm mm-hmm. down to a theory, you know, a theory or tie it into something, which is something we tie into kind of how we solve problems here. It's not about knowing the answer necessarily. It's about preparing yourself with a mindset that when that challenge comes, you're able to take it on and, you know, grapple with it, with your team and figure out what your approach is going to be and be nimble and be able to kind of pivot and swivel depending on what the, the, the situation is. And I think cops are they're already innately really good at that because of the nature of the, of the training. We go into situations that are fairly uncertain all the time and we have to be ready for, you know, a backup plan or contingencies. And so tactically speaking, we're ready for that. But if you take that, you apply that concept into managing an organization and looking at how you're going to develop your organization and, and affect uh, the culture, you could still apply it there. You know, you don't have to know where the bad guy is going to be. You don't have to know what the next challenge is going to be around the corner, but to have, uh, you know, a mindset of, okay, we're, we're going to be able to talk about the elephant in the room. We're not going to, you know, we're going to be able to tell the boss he's not wearing any clothes today. You know, the, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Do you have those relationships ready to go? Cause if you don't, that challenge is going to come and you're going to find yourself uh, not able to, to face it. And so that's where the connection is. Uh, I think in that individual and that systemic, you know, systemic uh, development where you have those pieces kind of support each other to face the complex challenges that wait for us, whether it's the industry and law enforcement, which has been on the front page for, you know, going on several years now, we've been in the forefront, but you can take it to any, I think it applies in many organizations and what's happening in the world today. I really appreciate that. Um, I really appreciate what you're saying there because what it what it touches on is the fact that unlike a lot of organizations, law enforcement isn't self-contained. You know, you really are, and I, I was so surprised to hear this term uh, used when I was doing my research, but I heard the term customer service um, from law enforcement when they were talking about their role in a community, that their job is customer service. And, you know, it law enforcement isn't just a self-contained organization. It You can have the organizational structure, but there is this broader spectrum of the place of law enforcement, the purpose of law enforcement, which is, um, its relationship to the community. Can you say more about since since I've since I heard that phrase customer service coming from I believe you and and other people in law enforcement. Can you say a little bit more about what that what does that mean if an organization is I love that the emperor has no clothes or you know that kind of assessment then how does that show up in in that relationship with the community? First and foremost, I think it allows us to, um, you know, approach problem solving in a more creative, broader perspective. And I mentioned, you know, how fast things are changing. If you think about how complex change is coming at us all of the time and you you want to be ready for those changes in problem solving and, and what the community is wanting from us can change and it's broadening. It's not just as simple as, 
um, identifying, you know, perpetrators and suspects and bad guys, whatever you want to call it, and taking care of that. There's a multitude of issues that law enforcement has had to engage with because it it deals with the community. And when you do that, you know, it opens us up to being in contact with people with mental health issues, yeah. people that are unstably housed. Those are definitely part of a larger social challenge that we come in contact. And so part of it is understanding what should be, what has been and what should be the lane of police officers. And I think that's where we are right now is really evaluating because I remember saying <laughs> in the last 10, 15 years, as uh, we were coming across more cases of mental health issues in the community, you know, I was part of the crisis negotiation team uh, coming up and, and we would have these incidents in patrol more often and more often. And when you, you know, defund or underfund mental health from, you know, the 80s and early 90s and switch those folks that are having challenges into the community, of course, they're going to be the ones that come into contact with law enforcement more often. And, mm -hmm. and so, and they say, you know, it's funny, we talk about law enforcement, we refer to our industry. Well, there's another term too, is policing. When are we policing and what does that mean? What does it mean? Law enforcement is really just one aspect of the mm -hmm. overall policing responsibilities. And so I think we're in that place where the folks that are are able to really successfully step up to this challenge are the ones that are able to um, kind of pivot and think more broadly about how do we reimagine, you know, forget the defunding part of it. I think I, I was, you know, that's a knee jerk emotional word and reaction and I get it, but it's really not about defunding. It's about reimagining how we do our work and where are the intersections of our police agencies with other social service agencies, if I were to say there's any place to really focus on, I would say that is probably the weaker link, especially for Mountain View anyway, because you, we've changed the laws, the sentencing laws over the years, assuming that there's gonna be some social services for, for, for people to refer them to. And then when you don't have those services in place, your hypothesis might have been correct, but if you don't have the, the social services in place to really help the people get over drug addiction or right. help their mental health issues, then they're going to come right back in and face law enforcement. And we're going to be the ones that are kind of coming in contact with these folks. So that is, I think, where the rub is. That's where the frustration has been, is that we kind of put the cart before the horse. We meaning... <laughs> legislation, you know, we make these law changes to force something, but that the overall, you know, criminal justice system with the social services system is not necessarily has the infrastructure to support the idea. And, and then we end, it ends up failing. And that's where we are now. Circling back to how we do our work, I think the success of Mountain View has really relied on our ability to collaborate with those systems in our region and leverage where those relationships and we didn't always have the best relationships it almost seemed like we were we were you know meant to be at odds with community service you know uh organizations or and people that help but it's really that's not if what happens if we come together and say okay here's our role and here's what here are our boundaries here's what we need to do if we see x y and z here's our gonna needs to be our response to these things per law 
um, and, and what the community expects of us. But is there a way that we could maybe refer people to you guys and maybe, you know, and so that's, we started several years ago, a new unit called Neighborhood Event Services. And that unit has been very busy in interfacing with our unstably housed folks and our more vulnerable populations in the community and working really closely with the social services um, to get people connected to services, right? Yeah, I, I love that because that is the shifting ego and saying, you know, that that the that the police department is not the whole thing. There are other services available and you know, that perhaps need, you know, the the money needs to be shifted so that those services are up and running and and available. But if you take the kind of the um organizational ego out of it and say if we're if we're showing up collaboratively we'll be able to serve our community better than if it's just one organization that isn't necessarily equipped to handle all of these different things you use the word complexity and i i am kind of obsessed with that right now uh, you and i were talking about this earlier it's so it's so easy to fall into a world of black and white, yes, yes or no, right or wrong. And what really strikes me about the work you're doing is that you're straddling the complexity of believing in an industry enough to stay in it and also being open to changing it. And how do you navigate that? How do you navigate that? I would imagine even there's a complexity of being in law enforcement and in the world outside of law enforcement, yeah. but then also within law enforcement, you know, that complexity of, I, I believe in this and I want it to change. How do you navigate that? Wow. That that's a good question. And I'm not sure I've really sat with that question in depth, but what comes to mind is one it's for me personally, it's exciting when I'm because it, it requires something different from me as we go along. So I feel like I'm personally and professionally growing as I'm showing up. I'm not stagnant. You know, I, I lean into the whole we use growth mindset versus fixed mindset in in our organization and, you know, talk to our folks about when you're going to you know think about promoting. We're looking for people with growth mindsets. And so you get a little obsessed with that and i'm very excited about that and it's challenging and fun to to not exactly know i mean there's a certain level of um of uncertainty that's uncomfortable but to be able to bring you know to have experiences where well, we didn't see that coming something bad happened we didn't see that coming but looking back we got through it and what helped us get through it was our relationships, our creativity, creating psychological safety on a team so that you could take a chance and give an idea, even though it doesn't get implemented and it falls flat, it's okay because it's not so attached to your ego. It's, it's more for the benefit of the mission at hand. The other piece to that is being able to have a vision. And I remember going to a leadership program many years ago, and that was one of the five pillars of 
this particular program's leadership development to look at. And I was, I probably felt like that was the one, you know, having, being able to have a vision. I was like, whatever, I'm not the chief. I don't need to have a vision. I'm not the one responsible for that. And it's also a value if you think about it, you know, somebody to be able to imagine something different. And I really want, I understood how important it is to have vision on what could be possible. It doesn't even have to be something attainable, you know, realistically attainable, but the, but you have to set your expectations high in order to make room for growth. If you set them to where, well, what is something reasonable? Maybe your tasks are reasonable. Mm -hmm. Maybe your, the individual actions and movement seem reasonable because you have to meet people and organizations where they are. Because if you try to bring them in at a higher level and they're really functioning down here, then you're going to miss the mark and it's going to land on deaf ears. They're not going to get it. But if you create that vision, and I think that's what has been important here is like, where are we going? Where are we really trying to do? And what is it? What, what impact do we want to have on our community? We want them to know us and trust us because if we don't have that, we don't have anything. And so everything we do has to somehow support that vision and that goal. And we can try a lot of things and things could fail and that is perfectly fine. And, and, and we are blessed to have a chief that even says that to us fairly often that it's even though, you know, we're not used to be allowing ourselves to fail in law enforcement because it's like, oh my gosh, you can't fail in law enforcement. You're not a tech startup company. You're an industry, you know, a social industry that you need to uh, do things the way you've done things per policy and procedure. And, and he's like, no, but there are areas that we make decisions that failure is acceptable. And we learn so much from those failures. And that's the, there's a lot of area for that, that when you identify, where do we have the room to make an error? Maybe we try an initiative and it kind of falls flat and we go, okay, back up. What did we do? Let's evaluate and let's reassess and let's make some different actions and move forward and keep that momentum going. It's really the small sustainable actions that go to support that broader vision of where you're trying to get to that help implement the sustainable change that we're looking to, to have to support the end goal. So you hear this all the time in executive coaching and uh, in organizational morale books and change books that you have to have a clear vision. What's your vision? And that that somehow has to be woven into you know, your mission statement, your value statement. And those are important. Sometimes they people shy away from them because they get too cliche and you have to be able to be aware of them at all times and be able to remind your folks of them, have them embedded in places that they don't get diluted with the cliche, because it's really important to know that you're striving towards, you know, a vision that is worthy and that supports your purpose as an individual and as an organization that has to, it's like a heartbeat, you know, you've mm -hmm. got to, you've got to keep it pumping. You got to keep it going. Yeah, it's beautiful. I I heard in that curiosity and being open. I mean, you mentioned before, you know, really listening. And in order to be curious, you have to really be listening. And so that what I had never expected to hear in talking about law enforcement was creativity. And, you know, so I think that, you know, being curious and open to and creative and using those tools to focus on your outcome 
is such a different approach that I than I had in my mind when I thought about you know kind of the fixed um, structures of of organization in law enforcement. We find when we are able to listen, and you you know this is, comes up in cross cultural experiences, is that we have far more in common than not, and when that can be realized when you're able to sit and talk with someone and realize, okay, there's more commonality here. You could have compassion for, and when you have compassion, it doesn't mean that you don't still arrest a person. doesn't mean that they they don't have, you know, they're not going to go through the process, but the impact on that person when they're shown compassion through that process is, is huge. It's different than if you're disrespectful condescending or biased in your perform the performance of your work especially in policing because we have such authority and it makes a difference and that's really what the essence of what we want our officers to take away and if they feel like they are treated respectfully and we we model that behavior how we talk about behavior in the model we model that internally because that's what we that's the quality that we want them to show the community members so we have to show that to, you know, the city, you know, government, you know, the city managers as as well as department managers need to have that level of respect for our people um, internally so that they could do that with the community. Yeah, I love that. And it starts with having that respect for yourself, having that alignment within yourself. Yes, yes. Can I ask you? to share the story of how you got into law enforcement? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in, um, and it's part and parcel of the story, knowing my background. Um, I grew up in uh, San Pablo, went to Richmond High in the East Bay uh, in Contra Costa County in the Bay Area. And uh, we did we did not have a lot. You know, at times my parents, we were living paycheck to paycheck. And um, so much lower income, uh, we lived in a lower income area. And so I saw a lot, um, to say the least. I saw a lot in my parents' relationship where how my stepdad treated my mom and those types of things. And, and then through school and um, just, you know, the education system and, and everything in the neighborhood that, that I grew up in. And so I, I felt like I grew up with this sense that things have to be no, I have to be a part of a system that's going to make things right. Um, that was in me at a very young age. I, I, I almost feel like I was born with it. And then it was just really set on fire through my environment and, and my upbringing. And so, um, you you know, if you look at, you know, what I did as extracurricular activities in high school, I was a peer counselor in high school. So when kids got into fights, they came to the peer counselors, you know, first before they went and, and were, was disciplined. Or, um, you know, I was part of youth educator program, which was a group of high school kids that went back to the junior high and taught them about drug addiction and how to avoid peer pressure and those types of things. So mentoring. So I was already involved in those types of activities at a young age. And so as I, you know, started to enter college and think about what I'm going to do, you know, I I felt like, well, I want to go into psychology, but some field in psychology, I want to go into law. I really loved law. And, And so I was thinking being a lawyer, I was thinking being a psychologist. And I got into school and I, I forced myself to keep an open mind in the first couple of years. You don't have to claim uh, your major. And I would take classes in both and kind of whittle my way through. And 
while I'm going through college, I worked as a bartender, uh, you know, near the school and it was a hotel bar. That's important because the hotel would host uh, training um, classes for law enforcement. And so there'd be verbal judo or, you know, legal update or what have you, right? Investigations. And all these cops would funnel through the hotel. And here I am, the bartender. So, you know, they're coming to the bar after class to get there <laughs> to submit their drink coupon. And so I ended up, in, you know, being able to interview probably hundreds mm-hmm. of police officers. And even at the time that I was a, a criminal justice major um, and not sure where I was going to go, the stories I heard from them were that if you go into um, probation, like juvenile probation, by the time the kids get into the probation system, they're pretty far in the system too. But as officers, you meet them at their entry point into the system and you could have more influence there. And I'll never forget that taking that away and thinking I can do more good as a police officer on the street interfacing with the crisis or the problem as it's unfolding than I could if I were somewhere later in the system. I wanted to be at the entry because I, you know, wanted to help that that prevention piece. And and then I went on my first ride along and I I was over. I mean I kept an open mind, but I was hooked. I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. I don't have to sit behind a desk, at least in the beginning of your career, you know, I the the day is never going to be the same. And it's going to be exciting. And I, I really love people and people problems. And law enforcement offered me that blend of uh, the expertise in the law and understanding the law and applying the law, and also a huge piece of psychology and understanding people and behavior and, you know, uh, treating people well and interviewing them and taking care of victims, victim advocacy, um, and all those things kind of blended together. And I just, I look back and was like, man, this is the perfect career for me. I can't even put together all these wonderful things in any other career that offers me. And I, you know, having been uh, over six, 26 years now, looking back, I would not change a thing. I, I like got so lucky. I'm so grateful. I picked the perfect profession. It has been a, a crazy ride and challenging, but so incredibly rewarding um, that I feel very fulfilled to be at this place in my career. I mean, that's really how I, how I got into the, my reflection uh, of it. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I really appreciate it. And it sounds like that it, it's been, there's been this common thread your whole life of how do I show up for people and help them move forward? Yeah. Is there anything that you want to share or that you want to make sure that you've said or anything before we close? You know, the only, you know, sometimes I feel obligated to qualify, you know, my experience, when we think about policing across the country, it's very difficult to compare one town or community to another, that there's such a wide variety. And so, Everything that I am saying is based on my experience in the Bay, in a, a smaller agency in the Bay Area of California. And, you know, other parts of the country have different challenges that we do from, you know, what we're experiencing. And, and so I'm not trying, trying to say that, you know, anything that we've done here is that we wouldn't have to do it differently somewhere else, but that it's an option that it's available 
and the smallest changes can make the biggest impacts so that it's worthy work. It really is worthy work to bring this in to support your people and to help your people bring that customer, that high level of customer service that the community needs and deserves. And it's possible anywhere. Yeah, that's, that's great. I'm hearing that from departments all over the country and that's very exciting to hear. And if you're open-hearted and open-minded, there's no stopping. There's no stopping forward movement. That's just great. I agree. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jessica. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and being so open and coming here with an open mind and an open heart. And uh, it's really just been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's, it was a lot of fun. I love talking to you and this was, this is very important work. So I'm, I'm happy to, happy to talk about it. <laughs> Good. Thank you. The word philanthropy is derived from the Greek word philos, which means loving, and anthropos, meaning human. So philanthropy is, at its core, loving humans. Love is the common thread running through all of my interviews this season. Every one of my guests loved the community they stood in enough to want more for it. They took steps, small at first, grounded in love and belief in their community which yielded unexpected and beautiful outcomes for themselves and others. When looking at philanthropy through the lens of love, every action is an important action, and everyone can lead from where they stand. What community do you love? You may already be a philanthropist. Do you give your time or share your talents or make connections or give that extra money because you love and believe in your community? That's the definition of philanthropy. So where do you see the opportunity to be more intentional, go one step further than you already do? If you need some direction, here are two organizations featured in this season that touched my heart deeply. Please consider donating to help their important and love-filled work continue. Old School Cafe at oldschoolcafe.com. That's O-L-D-S-K-O-O-L-C-A-F-E.com and New England Blacks in Philanthropy at nebip.org. That's nebip.org. Thanks so much.
my motivation and your motivation don't have to be actually that's part of what I love about this is is having conversations with people who have different perspectives. Yeah. Cuz that is part of the complexity. That's and great. it's only by walking towards that are we ever going to make any yeah. um any movement. So I that's awesome. That. Yeah, yeah, I love that. 